To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I was starting to get a better idea of how the Drummond brothers made some of their money. They had the store, where they could charge a lot. They handled estates, approved their own claims. They were guardians and could borrow Osage money from other guardians. They had so many different roles when it came to Osage finances. I kept seeing this pattern, and apparently, I wasn't the only one. I mentioned that letter I found from 1934 where the tribal attorney, Louis Stivers, said essentially the same thing. He called it an association, men who were using their positions over Osage families to advance their own interests. He names names, too, in addition to the Drummond Brothers. And these men he named either worked at the Drummond Brothers store or the local bank where Jack Drummond worked and Fred Gettner sat on the board. What Stiver seemed to say in this letter was that it wasn't just a coincidence that all the same men kept coming up in the Osage guardianships and estates they handled. It was a whole strategy, an association. That was a shocker, huh? That was a shocker of a letter. I sent this to Elizabeth Loha Homer, the lawyer in Washington, D.C., who's on the Osage Nation Supreme Court. Because for everything I had heard about that time period, I hadn't really seen any federal officials back then who seemed to catch that this was happening over and over again among the same people in Hominy. You don't hear about that very often, where those bad behaviors actually get caught. The names divers mentioned have come up again and again in my reporting. There's Fred Elshed, the guardian who lent out his ward's money to the Drummond brothers, and Carl T. Matthews, who is the guardian of Rhoda Wheeler Ridge, the Osage woman who accused the Pope brothers of arranging a marriage with her to take her money a man named Barlow. I recognized his name from Myron Banks Jr.'s audit. Fred Gettner loaned him money from Myron's account. Stivers lists a few others. He writes, at all at the end. So I can only assume there were more. The archives have other letters and documents that offer a look inside how all this seemed to work. In one case, the Office of Indian Affairs sent a field agent to look into one of Fred L. Shedd's guardianships. The superintendent had heard someone exerted, quote, influence over an Osage woman, so she would sign a paper saying she wanted Shedd to remain her guardian. That agent reported back that Jack Drummond visited her, Instead of she told the Office of Indian Affairs that she wanted to keep Shed as her guardian, he'd make sure she'd get more money each quarter and a new car. From what I've read in the papers from this time period, these were prominent members of the white community in Hominy. This was a town of three or 4,000 people back then, with a young Rotary Club that all but one of the men on this list were members of. The club came up in an article about a local game of donkey ball, a bunch of white businessmen riding donkeys, tossing the ball around. And Fred Gettner specifically seemed to have a lot of sway. 
He owned those shares in the store, in the bank. He had been the head of his local Masonic temple in the early 1920s and led a committee to pave a road to Tulsa. Fred Gentner was also on the board of the company that published the Hominy newspaper. And while he was doing all that, according to Stivers, he was also using his connections with other white businessmen to access money from Osage guardianships and probates. When I showed this letter to Gentner Drummond in his office, he didn't think it said these men were using Osage estates to enrich themselves, just that someone was objecting to having businessmen administer these estates. There was one sentence in this letter from Louis Stivers that stood out to me. After he lists off examples where he's seen the association play out, he writes, All of these are sufficient to cause one to raise this question, to say nothing of Mr. Drummond's conduct in the Wahusai estate, in connection with certain disbursements due Josephine Loha Kip. This was a new name to me, but Elizabeth, she actually knew Josephine well. I always thought that Josephine was my grandma, uh, but it turns out Josephine was not my grandma. Josephine was my grandpa's first wife. Elizabeth says she thought Josephine was her grandma because she was at her house so much. They lived just outside of Hominy, in a big house, hosted dinners, would have people over all the time. She was like the, you know, kind of the center of the social scene for Osages in Hominy. And uh, so we were over there all the time. I mean, it's like wa- literally walking distance from our house. I wanted to know why Stiver singled out Josephine and her stepmother, a woman named Wahusaye, what conduct he was talking about that warranted its own sentence in a letter that was already about a bunch of questionable stuff he seemed to think was going on. So I pulled Wahusaye's probate file, the one Stivers mentioned. She died in 1930. And what I saw in her probate was another letter from Stivers. He flagged something, an almost $17,800 claim from the Hominy Trading Company, debt the store said Wahusai's estate owed. And that claim, it was approved by Wahusai's executor, Fred Gettner Drummond. This is the strange part. According to Stivers, it wasn't Wahusai's debt at the store. It was money her husband's estate owed when he died seven years earlier in 1923. His name was Charles Warishi. At this point, I had seen some pretty enormous claims on Osage Estates, but nearly $17,800 to a trading post? That's more than a quarter million dollars today. And according to this letter, Fred Gettner was administrator of Warishi's estate, too. I started looking around for any information I could find about Charles Warishi, because he seemed like he might hold the key to figuring out what conduct Stivers was talking about in that letter. The example he seemed to find most questionable, that Fred Gettner Drummond was behind. And I learned that Charles Warishi was actually pretty famous at the time. He was a religious leader, influential in Hominy. I found a newspaper article calling him one of the most photographed Native Americans of the time. He took a trip to Mexico once, and made headlines across the country. I found mentions in newspapers from El Paso and Washington, D.C. He was also a source for a well-known ethnologist named Francis LaFleche, who spent decades documenting Osage culture. His work comes up in a lot of books, and Warishi is mentioned by name. There was so much about him out there. 
But what stood out to me the most was a social media post, on Reddit of all places, from five years ago. The title said, Osage Priest of Puma Clan, Charles Warishi. In the comment, this is my great-great-grandfather, born 1862, murdered December 10th, 1923, during Osage Reign of Terror. This is In Trust. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I didn't set out to do a story about murder. Not that those stories don't deserve to be told. There was just so much focus on the murders from the Reign of Terror. Books, now a movie. And I wanted to understand the financial schemes going on around them. The ones that don't get as much attention, but still have these massive generational impacts. But what I've learned from talking to Osage families is that it's impossible to look at what happened during the 1920s and 1930s in Osage County without coming across murders that were never investigated or deaths that don't make sense. There was Nomit Sehi, who died while married to a man half her age, a man who sold her head rights just a few years later, Myron Bangs Jr.'s mother, who got sick just when a man who wanted her money married her. Suspicious circumstances, definitely, but no one ever said they knew for sure what happened. But now, I was looking at this Reddit post, from someone who said definitively 
that their great-great-grandfather, Charles Warishi, was murdered. The same man whose debt at the Hominy Trading Company had come up in the Stivers letter. I sent a message to the account on the post, explained what I was working on, that I wanted to know more about Charles Warishi. For days, I refreshed the page over and over again, wondering if I'd hear back. While I waited, I went to someone else who might have heard about Charles Warishi, John Maker, who told me about the Osage Price. His great-grandmother was Wahusaye, and even though Warishi was her second husband, and not John's direct ancestor, I thought maybe he would know how Warishi died. Well, I heard from that family, Angie Jake, who was his great-great-granddaughter, that... uh, he had been murdered on that road going out to their old place called Cotton Gin Road. Of course, it was back in those days as a horse and buggy in the dirt road. And they had found him murdered, shot in his buggy, just leaned over. But it was a bullet wound to the head. And a horse was just standing there, stopped, and somebody was just coming or going and found him like that. What was Angie like when she told you that? Well, I, I know she, she was hesitant to tell me. It's like kind of a, an old skeleton closet story, you know. But she was real reverent about it when she was telling me. And, and I think we're just riding around in the car. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like, um, by the way, I'm, oh, my old grandfather <clears throat> was murdered on this road. I was like, I had never heard that. I, of course, I had heard that name. Oh, Charlie Warris, he was a well-known name around Homley, real respected, oh, uh, religious leader. So John Maker had heard Charles Warishi was murdered during the Reign of Terror, and he had heard this story from a woman named Angie. John told me, like a lot of deaths from this time, this wasn't something people talked a lot about, that people were scared the same thing could happen to them. The corruption of the time is well documented now. But John said, for a long time, this was only ever something that was whispered about. And you know, back in those days, it was common practice for these coroners or medical people. Yeah, we, we did all right, you know. No autopsy, <laughs> none of that. I mean, that corruption was the coroners, the medical examiners, the doctors, all the way to Oklahoma City on all these Osage deaths. I found out Angie had actually talked to someone else about it, an Osage woman she was distantly related to, who wrote her thesis paper on the Osage Native American church. In that paper, there's a passage from a conversation with Angie where she says, Warishi didn't live very long. He was murdered. But Angie says her parents never really sat her down and told her anything. Angie has since passed away, so I don't know how she knew about Warishi's death or if she knew any more than what she told John, or this researcher. At this point, I knew Louis Stivers suspected the Drummond brothers and other men around Hominy of being in an association, and that Stivers thought Fred Gintner Drummond took a bunch of money from Wahusai's estate, money Fred Gintner said the store was owed by her late husband, Warishi. And now, I was learning that there was this whole other element, this belief by Warishi's family that he was murdered. I was looking around for more information on Charles Warishi one day when I went to check Reddit again. This time, I had a new message from that account behind the post that said Warishi was murdered. 
His name is John Horsechief. He's an Osage citizen, an IT expert who works with a lot of old Osage records. We talked on the phone a few times. He said he was interested in seeing the documents I had found, so I sent him the letter from Louis Stivers, the reason I had come across his post to begin with. John invited me out to his family's house in Hominy. John? I'm John, yeah. Rachel, it's nice to finally meet you in person. Glad you're here. John had two crockpots on in the kitchen. There were jugs of tea on the table. His son had baked cookies. Oh, yeah, and I was going to tell you guys, if you're hungry, yeah. I made, like, traditional Indian corn with buffalo. Oh, awesome. It's real corn, the kind we grow here. My uncle grows it, and it's been, like, tested. It's got, like, 16% protein in this corn. I sat down with John in the living room. His dad, Alfred, was also there. Oh, yeah, hi. John said his sister, Geneva, and his cousin, Mary Jo, were going to come by later. The man they were going to tell me about, he was extraordinarily important not just to their family, but to the Osage Nation's history. He was a religious leader at a time when Osage society was changing dramatically. He had been educated, but he chose to live a uh, Osage life. He wore traditional clothing. He preferred to speak his language. And, uh, you know, he lived a traditional life as much as he could to that point. And so those are the things that we really value about the man of who he is and this is really why I want my pops to be here, my son, and all my family is because we have this big, large family, and we, like, really take care of each other and our kids. And But it's all through this culture, and it's all through what our grandpa left us. And so it's kind of like... Warishi died long before John or his dad were born. And even though Warishi was technically his great-great-grandfather, John calls him grandpa, says he's always felt a strong connection to him. When we sat down... John told me about a moment when he felt that connection, a moment that changed everything for him. At the time, John was working in the Osage Nation's IT department. He says at first his job was mostly dealing with the typical IT stuff, messing with printers, network management, plugging in keyboards. But um, one day there was a big old box of dusty materials in the the IT room. A box of old audio recordings, reel-to-reel tapes, waiting to be digitized. And uh, they're trying to pass it off to people. No one wanted to do it. And I was a new guy in IT, and so I needed to do something. And then the first tape I digitized was uh, one of our leaders named Bacon Ryan. And uh, he's a very famous chief of ours. And I heard his actual voice. And from that moment, I knew that's what I wanted to do. John started digitizing and converting more and more of these recordings, cataloging them. Some were tapes. Others were from files from old wax cylinders at the Library of Congress. Yeah, so when I started doing those, that's when I started, you know, really getting into it. And it was just opened up a new world for me, you know, because I didn't think we had recordings that old. John says these tapes were organized by catalog number. So we'd have to compare the numbers with field notes from the time to figure out who was talking. And as he's doing that one day, he notices something. They had our grandpa's name written down a whole different way. So Warishi can get written down a bunch of different ways, right? And so... It, it was like with the CH, I think. And then uh, I looked and I was like, is that Grandpa? Sure enough, I started listening to it and it was. And I was like, man, this is really him. This is it. And, and what was his voice like when you heard that? You know, it was beautiful. It was haunting. And it was just like, he's talking to me. John told me a lot of the recordings with Warishi were religious songs. Powerful. Important. Warishi lived at a time when the Native American church was first forming. John told me he was trying to hold on to parts of traditional Osage beliefs and culture, 
And these songs were part of that. When you hear that, and then you think about it, and you go home, and you pray, and you think about, man, why did, why was I the one who got to hear my grandpa's voice? And so, you know, I don't want to say it's like about me or something like that, but, you know, we, we believe everything happens for a reason, and if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And so I took that as, as a sign, a good sign, and so that's what I got into. And then the more I learned about it, I just totally went into it. While Rishi was born in the 1860s, he lived on the Osage Reservation before the land was divided up and parceled out to individuals, before headrights. Then allotment came, and everything changed. I imagine that would have been like taking you and dropping you in the middle of another country where you don't speak the language. This is Mary Jo, John's cousin. She said Warishi would have watched the impact of allotment firsthand and seen the U.S. government's efforts to force the Osage Nation to assimilate. And so taking someone out of something that would have been a community-type environment where we don't look after the survival of ourselves, we look after survival of the community, and then separating, purposely doing the separating, there you see the evolution, forced evolution. John and his family told me when oil money started pouring in, and more and more white people moved to Osage County. Warishi knew things were going to get bad. He watched as traders and bankers and ranchers all sought to get rich off the Osage Nation, its land, its oil money. This whole time, Osage children were being forced to attend Native American boarding schools, a lot of it paid for with Native money, money held in trust by the United States. These boarding schools punished children for speaking their own language, and forced them to wear certain clothes. They were also rife with abuse. Warishi was like wanting to save this culture. So he knew that we were getting wiped out here. This, the table was stacked against us. The lawyers, the policemen, they were all against us. They were taking away our religion, our culture. So he was like, let's go somewhere else and start over where we can get the religion going as much as we can make it work in the times that we live in. So they thought about Mexico and they went down there. And Mexico. I've seen references to this trip all over the newspaper archives. In one, from December 1921, it says Warishi is, quote, proposing to remove the Indians from the right Pahuska jurisdiction, a reference to the Osage Agency superintendent at the time. There's also another newspaper clipping from June of 1922. It says Warishi hosted a feast at his house outside of Hominy. At this feast, he reportedly said he had already met with President Obregón of Mexico, and he was supportive of the plan to make Mexico the Osage Nation's new home. The paper says Warishi, quote, has the idea that this is too much of a white man's country. We went down there with a sack of dollars, and when we got to Mexico, he turned it into a bag of pesos, and he paid for everything, he talked to everything, he managed everything, he was never scared. You know, he was on a mission to do something. He was trying to preserve our culture, our people, you know what I mean? So that's how bad it was here. That's how deadly and bad it was here, that they were getting murdered. I mean, they could see the writing on the wall. But the Mexico plan didn't work out. After he visited, Warishi determined the land was no good for farming. And by the time he came back to Hominy, just as he had predicted... Disaster had struck Osage County. The reign of terror was well underway. Just a year later, Warishi, too, 
was dead. So this is it. We have a During our conversation, John offered to take me out to Warishi's land. It's still in the family. Only a couple buildings are still standing. There was a fire out here. The family says an accident back in the 70s. Here is where Charles Warishi lived. And it was a big, giant brick house that he built. And after it burned down, some of the bricks are over my little house I have over there. I use it to kind of make my little driveway. But this is where he had his... Big, this is where Charles Rishi's big house was at, and they called this the farm out here. It's just a few miles away from where John lives now. The foundation's still there. A couple other buildings, too. One called the Summer House, kind of like a big guest house. Different people come visit for like two weeks at a time, and that's what they would live in the Summer House, or relatives come over, or we'd have our dances. It was like for guests, and it was like for big occasions. This is the same house Elizabeth Loha Homer mentioned where she had all those memories from growing up, of big dinners and social gatherings. Being there with John, I could imagine kids running around, adults visiting. And so this is our family's specific church house right here. Warishi's church is also on the property. It has eight sides, a pointed roof. And so you'll see these around. At one point, there was 45 or so of these churches active in the county. Each family had one. There was about four of them active left. And this was active till about 10, 15 years ago, and so that's what me and Mary Jo and Geneva are here. We're going to, we're trying to, this is what we're trying to get build, build back, right? Because the tribe is having a renaissance, you know, of our culture and who we are. You know, we've been through the worst, worst times, you know what I mean? And the ones who are left, we're coming back stronger and we want to get back the stuff that we lost, you know, our family, our church, our culture, our language. And, you know, this is like for me personally, now that I'm becoming an elder, you know, I'm talking to Mary Jo and Geneva. This is something I want to fix up and get back together. And, you know, in 100 years, our boys and our grandsons are going to sit in here and they're going to know what to do and this is going to be their place again. So that's what we want. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I've heard that Charles Barishi was murdered from a few different people at this point. 
Unfortunately, everyone who would have had firsthand knowledge of this, the people who were there back then, they've all died. But the story's out there, and the details are remarkably consistent. Charles Warishi was on his way home, in a buggy, on Cotton Gin Road, when someone shot him in the head. But the official story was completely different. Even though Warishi was the subject of a bunch of articles while he was alive, I could only find a couple newspapers that mentioned his death. It's the same article, republished, one on December 12th by a newspaper in Paheska, and the other on the next day in the Osage Journal. The headline was, Charles Warishi dead at Hominy. His name is spelled differently. 57 words that say he died at Rolater Hospital in Oklahoma City, that his wife and daughter were there. The service is at 10 a.m. Rolater Hospital, all the way in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City is a two-hour drive from Hominy today, way longer in 1923. It's the same location on his death certificate, which says he died on December 10, 1923, from empyema of gallbladder with stones. Basically, the doctor who filled out this death certificate was saying Warishi died of complications from gallbladder inflammation. Today, it's pretty rare to die from that, but it can happen if left untreated. The undertaker was in Oklahoma City, too. His name was Ed L. Hahn. In the funeral home he worked at, it still exists today. On Cook Street and Draper, this is Cheryl. How may I help you? Hi, Cheryl. Uh, my name's Rachel. I told Cheryl I was looking for anything she could give me on Warishi. I would have to look and see if we actually have the record or not uh, that far back. Uh, I mean, we do have some that far back, but they're a little sketchy sometimes. Hmm. And uh, I will need to go upstairs and look for that, so I will need to call you back. Uh, Cheryl dug around in the records for a while. She called me back when she found something. I don't have a lot of information. This is all handwritten, so it's kind of hard to read. Okay. It's just a little card is all it is. Uh, back then, that's about all we, all we ever had. Cheryl told me some of the basic facts the funeral home had. His name, that he was married, that he was 68 years old. There was an informant. I guess the gentleman that, that took care of him was um, Fred G. Drummond. And he died at Rolators or Rolators Hospital. So what would be the role of an informant? That would give us the information as to what, like mother and father's names, date of birth, date of death, uh, that sort of thing. Things for the death certificate. Is there any information about how he died? No, there's nothing on here at all about how he died. Just where he died. And uh, that's it. So Fred Gettner was the informant on this record at the funeral home. He was the one who called to give Warishi's background information. His age, that he was married. Cheryl sent me a copy of the card and a separate itemized claim for Warishi's undertaking services. 
it was $837.24. The most expensive part was the casket, $550. An account at the Hominy Trading Company paid for it. But there was no mention of how Warishi died. The funeral bill, the death certificate, the paper, they all put Charles Warishi in Oklahoma City when he died, apparently from some sort of gallbladder inflammation. When I'd find something like this, I'd send it to John Horsechief. I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not what we heard. So do you think he would, like, because you said that you still believe that he was absolutely murdered. Yes, I believe that. John and I have talked a lot about this. Why the paperwork doesn't match the story he's heard, that a lot of people have heard, that Warishi was shot in the head. John told me he hasn't changed his mind. There are enough stories and enough proof that corruption was rampant back then. I've tried to find out more about J.B. Rolater, the doctor the hospital was named after, who signed off on Warishi's death certificate. There's nothing I've seen that indicates he was ever suspected of being part of the reign of terror, of the criminal conspiracy that reached far beyond William Hale, to lawyers, medical examiners, doctors. There are some murders that have been solved from that time period, thanks to these archives and family stories. They come up in books like Killers of the Flower Moon or The Deaths of Sybil Bolton. And I wish I could tell you this was one of those stories. And I figured out definitively whether Warishi was murdered, and if he was, who did it. But for every case that's been solved, there are more like Warishis, where finding the answer seems almost impossible. The records say one thing, but knowing the corruption of the time, it's hard to know whether you can trust them. The family story says something else, but it's been a very long time, and no one who is there is still alive. But there was still this whole other element to Warishi's death that John still had questions about. The money. Why Warishi's estate would have owed so much, and where it went. That's after the break. John said he was as sure as he ever was that Warishi was murdered. The official documents that placed him in Oklahoma City on December 10th just didn't seem right to him. Why would he have gone to a hospital so far away? If he wasn't murdered, why had John heard this specific story that Warishi was shot in the head on Cotton Gin Road his entire life? John said when he was reading all this paperwork, the death certificate, the card from the funeral home where Fred Gentner was the informant, the receipt paid for by an account at the Drummond store. It was enough to make him want to know more. Why Fred G. Drummond was all over Warishi's and his wife Wahusai's paperwork. He wanted to know how Fred Gentner ended up with so much of his family's money. So John went to the courthouse and asked for the records on Warishi's estate. Sure enough, I went up there yesterday to pull up those records and it's a big... Manila envelope this thick. The very first name, Fred G. Drummond. 
Oh, shit. So he became his executor after Grandpa died, right? And on the very first day, Fred G. Drummond's in there trying to correct the letter and get paid for this and get paid for that. When John went to the courthouse that day, I actually ran into him in the parking lot. He told me he put in an order to have Warishi's entire probate copied and printed out so he could keep it. They told him it would take a couple days. He said I could come with him when he picked it up. Hey, fellas. It's a very, it's kind of intimidating courthouse in a way. Yeah, how are you feeling? Um, it's a different feeling, you know? Like, the first time we came up here, I could really feel it. The first time we asked about it. These are the tomes. Yeah, the, the old books with the golden red spine. Yeah. I scanned every single one of that white one. Really? What can I do for you guys? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'd like to pick up a probate I ordered on Friday. Uh, what's your name? John Horsechief. Uh, Charles? Orishi, yeah. $125. John handed over his card. The woman behind the counter walked over to her computer, only to return a few seconds later. She told us the machine couldn't take a card with a pen. John needed to come back with cash. Okay, well, I'm going to have to go get some money and come back. Okay. 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 John let me ride with him to an ATM nearby. We drove past Reed Drummond's Mercantile, past her hotel, the Pioneer Woman Boarding House. Downtown Pajesca was busy that day. A lot of tourists around. John's told me before, he doesn't have anything against Reed Drummond. She never did anything to him or his family. And I've heard a version of this before from some other Osage citizens, that Reed's brought jobs to the community and helped revitalize Pajesca. But John also said he feels conflicted about eating at her restaurants knowing the broader suspicions around the Drummond family's history in Osage County. It's no secret what they did. They took advantage of us through hook and crook. And, you know, they can say that we signed the paper and it was all legal, but, I mean, they're sitting here holding all the money. I just want to know the truth. John withdrew the cash and we drove back to the courthouse. He paid for Wabrishi's probate, left with a few hundred pages, Double-sided. We made a plan to meet up later, after he had a chance to read through it. Later that week one night, after John had gotten off work, I went back to his house. He had all the papers from the probate file on his kitchen table with a magnifying glass. Yeah, so what do you make of, like, these dates? Oh, there's even more. So, like, there's this one, and then there's just a $1,000 charge from the hospital, from the Rollers Hospital to my grandpa's bill. That's farther down here, I think. In addition to the Rollers Hospital charge, there's also a claim from the Hominy Trading Company. In the first week of December, it shows Warishi bought some coffee and eggs, a couple boxes of Jello, And on December 8th, two days before he died, there's another claim from the Drummond store. $200 cash for, quote, 
expense to Oklahoma City. Fred Gettner approved that and all the other claims. It's even worse when you see all these, this guy's name all over it, right? He's the one getting all the money out of it and directly benefiting from it. This dude's name is all over my grandpa's paperwork, right? Even seeing the probate, it still wasn't clear how Arishi's estate would have owed so much money to the Hominy Trading Company, about $17,800 by the time the store collected on it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, So we have the, we have the congressional record, and we have that funeral card from the Oklahoma City Funeral Home with expenses that went into the funeral. But then I'm not even, like, really seeing where those would be. Maybe those are, yeah, they're not even in here, are they? Maybe those are paid out of his own pocket. I don't know, but I don't even know what goes on. It's just so confusing. It was confusing. You have to make a lot of assumptions to get the numbers to add up because there aren't many receipts showing how the debt could have piled up so much. But I have been able to put together a rough idea of how that happened. The congressional record I mentioned to John, it was the same hearing where one lawmaker called the extreme funeral bills worse than Teapot Dome. They cite an example, an Osage citizen whose funeral expenses were around $9,000. They call the person Wari Shah and later Wari Si. But it's clear from the other details they mention, they're just missaying Wari Shi because they're talking about an Osage man who lived in Hominy, whose undertaker was in Oklahoma City, whose administrator was Fred Gentner Drummond. I've looked at all the other estates Fred Gentner handled. Warishi is the only one that makes sense here. According to this hearing, the monument for Warishi's grave cost $4,800, and the casket was $3,000. The funeral came out to more than $9,000. A couple years later, as the administrator of Warishi's estate, Fred Gentner Drummond issued the Hominy Trading Company a promissory note, basically an IOU. It said Warishi's estate owed the store a little over $11,000. And because Fred Gentner gave his store a promissory note from the estate, it was collecting interest every year until one day, when Wahusai dies, and the store makes the claim with interest on her estate for roughly $17,800, more than $300,000 today. So that's where the $17,800 claim on Wahusai's estate must have come from, Warishi's funeral, the one that came up in a congressional hearing that one lawmaker called worse than Teapot Dome. This is what Louis Stivers, the tribal attorney, was complaining about in that letter I found, the one that sent me looking for Charles Warishi's family that led me to John Horsechief. Stivers was objecting to how much that debt increased and how the guy who issued the promissory note from Warishi's estate was also the guy collecting on it, Fred Gentner, an IOU to himself effectively from the estate of an Osage man who couldn't dispute it. But despite all the flags, from Stivers, from U.S. congressmen, Fred Gettner never had to pay the money back. A county judge overruled Stivers' objections and said the Hominy Trading Company could keep the roughly $17,800. He also said Fred Gettner could keep the executor's fee he paid himself, 
another $3,294.80. And Fred Gittner's lawyer, a man named G.K. Sutherland, made $1,500 from Wahusai's estate. It's like an open check. You can just start writing money against this guy. When you think about it, that this used to be yours, and you actually see the paperwork, and you know, think you look at things a lot differently, you know what I mean? You look at people a lot differently. You think about yourself differently. John told me he was going to keep looking through Barbrishi's records, reading the probate, piecing together just what happened to his family in the 20s and 30s. You know, one of these days we're going to make sense of all this paperwork and and it'll be some more closure, but you know, I'm just barely kind of like putting together all that happened and like the repercussions of what it did to us personally, you know what I mean, on a personal level, not just financially, right? You know, so the bigger loss is just that he meant more to us, the person, right? But, you know, it's it's bringing us together as a family and it's just like, you know, just something we can kind of, I guess now we're ready to talk about it because I have a feeling they didn't talk about it for a long time. You know what I mean? It was just so painful and just such a loss. And so it was very, very hard on our family. So, and I think a lot of, you know, it's just so much stuff goes through my head, right? Because my grandpa was resistant to all this stuff. Like, let's keep our culture. Let's keep our language. Let's keep what makes us us. And then he was actively trying to move the tribe to where we could practice our culture and stuff. And it's just definitely makes you think that this culture is that strong. It can withstand all this, all these millions of dollars, all that. And if we just lean into that, you know, we'll be all right. John and I went through more of the probate. We talked for a while. It was getting dark outside, 30-something degrees. A winter storm was rolling in. He told me about other things he was up to, projects he was working on with people around town. He showed me some beadwork he was doing for his son, a leather hat he made. John told me, before I left, there was something he wanted to show me. He had just gotten back from Nebraska, from a buffalo hunt. You know, I had a gun, and I was about 70 yards away, and I was in a 4 by 4 You know, I just kind of got out of a 4 by 4 waited. I couldn't shoot nothing else, because if you shoot another one, you got to pay for that one, too. I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> so I waited until you have to wait till nothing behind him or nothing in front of him. And then I, I did and I prayed and I was very thankful. You know, it was a good feeling, good experience, a yeah. blessing. So I'm very happy for that. And, you know, that's the kind of good things I want to spread around. John pulled up a video on his phone. He had a brush in his hand, combing it through the hide. But yeah, that's a buffalo robe. I'm, I'm making a buffalo robe. My first Osage killed buffalo in over 100 years. That's what I'm saying until someone pops up with some picture, but this is what I'm trying to take back. Man, I'm going to say, hey, we need to start eating buffalo, growing our own corn, learn how to do this again. Does it make you feel close to Warishi? It does, yeah. It makes it feel like his blessings are coming to me. You know, he's helping me out and just got to fall this way.
In Trust is a production of Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. It's reported and hosted by me, Rachel Adams Heard. Additional reporting by Allison Herrera. Davis Land is our senior producer. Samantha Story is our executive producer. Jeff Grocott is our senior editor. Additional editing by Francesca Levy and Daniel Ferrara. Additional production by Victor Ibeas. Production support from Gilda DeCarli. Sound engineering by Blake Maples. Fact-checking by Molly Nugent. Theme music by Laura Orman. Photography by Shane Brown. Special thanks to Brett Goldstein, a forensic handwriting consultant, and Brody Ford with Bloomberg News. You can email us at podcasts at Bloomberg.net. Find more about this episode at Bloomberg.com slash trust. For maps, newspaper archives, photos, and other documents related to this episode, go to Bloomberg.com slash trust. Find trust anywhere you get your podcasts. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.